to hear God's word. Um, <clears throat> almost forgot I had a mask on. That's when you know uh, life's changed. Um, <clears throat> so Ephesians four seventeen through thirty two is where uh, we are going to be uh, this morning. You heard the uh, saying that the clothes make the man. You ever heard that that phrase? It's a saying that means that a person's judged by the clothes that they wear. Um, and I, you know, as I thought back about that, I, um, I think how ultimately how untrue it is physically. The clothes don't ultimately make the man. They may make you feel better. I don't know if you, uh, in this process of quarantine, have realized the value of getting dressed up. You know, for work, there's something about. Uh, being dressed and, and ready to go that can mentally uh, change your perspective as you think about your work. So it certainly can make a difference, but it doesn't ultimately change who you are. Uh, and yet here in Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, we're going to see that spiritually what we wear matters. Spiritually what we wear defines who we belong to. Um, but I remember as a kid uh, becoming aware of of clothing and of brand name clothing uh, as a uh, sixth or seventh grader, uh, I remember uh, really, really wanting to to wear Nike stuff, and um, my my parents weren't always willing to buy me the nicest uh, Nike clothes, and in particular shoes. As a kid, was always this kind of back and forth battle with my parents because I was hard on my shoes. You know, you're always outgrowing them, and so my parents' philosophy was like, why would I spend money on nice shoes when next month you're going to be a different size, and you know, you're, you're probably going to get them really dirty. And, and so when I was uh, around sixth grade, I started to, to mow yards uh, in my neighborhood to earn money. And so I would go knock on every neighbor's door and ask him if I could mow the yard, and uh, and Many of them would let me, and uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure if I ever did a good job or not, but I remember getting like $60 after mowing three yards, and uh, and the very first thing I wanted to do was to go to Shoe Carnival. Uh, you guys been to Shoe Carnival? Shoe Carnival is a magical place uh, as a sixth grader when you're looking at shoes, because not only are there all those shoes, but they have that little thing inside. You can spin the wheel, and you can get in, and it like has all these coupons that you can grab, and and so not only was Shoe Carnival an experience, but it had the most affordable name brand shoes. And, and I remember uh, having enough money not to get like Jordans or, or something really cool, but uh, I basically got the, the bottom level Nike shoe. But the most important thing is that Nike swoosh was right there on my shoe. And I could go to school and I mean, I probably walked odd, you know, I was like walking like this so everybody could see, you know, my Nike swoosh uh, and and let them know that I had name brand shoes. Uh, and, and, you know, when we look back on that, we, we often realize how kind of silly that is. But but I thought that that like made or broke broke me. It was it was defining of who I was. It kind of got me in in my mind to a certain crowd. We. We put a lot of emphasis sometimes on what we wear, uh, maybe sometimes too much emphasis on what we wear. But as I said here in Ephesians 4, when it comes to um, our spiritual clothes, what we wear couldn't be more important. Uh, and in this latter half of Ephesians in chapters 4 through 6, we've, been, uh, we've really been looking at how Paul unpacks the gospel and its implications for the church. Uh, the the title of this sermon series is, is called We Are the Church. Uh, and 
we, we've done this a few times. We, we did this when we were live streaming. It was always somewhat strange to me, uh, but uh, there's a little bit of a, a responsive kind of nature to this. So when I ask who's the church, uh, I want you to respond, we are. So who's the church? Who's the church? As the church, we're called to live our lives in light of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. That's what Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about. It's the, the good news of God's blessings to us in Christ and through the Spirit. It's the, the good news of our reconciliation to God and to one another. It's the mystery of the gospel that's brought us together in Christ as the family of God from all kinds of different backgrounds. And now in Ephesians, starting in Ephesians 4, Paul says, Therefore, in light of that, Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. We saw in Ephesians 1 through 6 that um, <clears throat> we're to maintain the unity of the church and the bond of peace, a unity that's built on our shared calling, a unity that's built and cultivated through Christ-like character and, and that's grounded on our common confession. Last week in verses 7 through 16, we saw that we're to grow up as the church into Christ, that Christ draws us together and Christ drives us forward as a church calling us to maturity, calling us to grow by His grace. And today we're going to talk about the holiness of the church. So we talked about the unity of the church, the growth of the church. Today we're going to talk about the holiness of the church. And in fact, we're going to talk about it this week and we're going to talk about it next week. Not because it's my hobby topic, but just because it happens to be what is emphasized here in Ephesians 4 and 5. You see, holiness both defines who makes up the church as well as how the church should live in the world. What we're going to see in uh, this latter half of Ephesians 4 that God is, is calling us as a people to walk in holiness. And that only is possible for those who know Jesus and then who are being transformed by him to reflect God in the world. So as we think about holiness, there's oftentimes um, uh, different ideas that we can have about what holiness is and what the holiness of the church should look like. And sometimes we get this maybe image of a, of a stuffy uh, type of, of group of people that you wouldn't want to be around. But that's not what God describes holiness as. And we're going to see here in verses 17 through 24, uh, first and foremost, that holiness comes from knowing Jesus. And in fact, we could say it this way, as we think about holiness in the church, the church is made up of those who know Jesus Christ. Look at verses 17 through 24. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy or eager to practice in every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So here in verses 17 through 24, we see that the church is made up of those who know Jesus. And, and what Paul is doing is he's speaking to believers, to the church at Ephesus, and he's reminding them 
of something. He, he's speaking with, with authority. He's, he's speaking in the Lord. He says, I say this and testify in the Lord. And what is it that he says? He says, watch how you walk. Watch the way you live. Don't live or walk as the Gentiles do. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, he says. And Paul uses Gentiles here not to refer to a, uh, a group of ethnic people, but as a summary uh, statement of, of life apart from God. This is often uh, similar to the way today we might use the word uh, pagan or worldly, that it's life apart from God. You must no longer walk as you used to walk, live as you used to live. And what he describes is kind of a, um, a stair-step case down into a life that's far from God. He talks about uh, uh, life apart from God being marked by futility of our minds, darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God, from knowing and enjoying life with God because of ignorance. And all of that due to the hardness of hearts. And, and, and once our hearts become hard and we're... Um, uh, we're foolish in our thinking, we begin to give ourselves to all kinds of sinful ways of living. You know, and as I read this, and I, I think sometimes in our culture, uh, the, the call that God gives us to watch how we walk and to not walk as the Gentiles do or to walk as the world does, sometimes uh, we, we have become desensitized in, in many ways to the sin that's around us. And it can sound like Christians are old fuddy-duddies talking about what you shouldn't do in the world. And yet God is honest with us, and he gives it to us straight. He tells us about the danger of life apart from God. He, he paints a picture of what happens when we willfully and stubbornly resist God. You see, to follow what Paul is saying, there's a number of different layers here as he talks about the way, the way we think and our darkened understanding and, and our ignorance and our hardness of hearts. And to follow the logic, you have to pay attention to the because and the due to statements. You see, it says that their life, life in, as the Gentiles live, a life apart from God is marked by futility in thinking, just more fully characterized by darkened in our understanding, which leads to alienation from God. But all of this is due to ignorance and not to an ignorance and like, oops, I didn't know but due to, as it says at the end of verse 18, to the hardness of heart. It's to the, the stubborn refusal to listen to God and to listen to his word. It's similar, as Paul said elsewhere in, in Romans chapter 1, a statement that, <clears throat> that you see Paul taught this uh, as he uh, established churches. He uh, and he, as he preached the gospel, he helped people to understand our need for, for being made alive in Christ, our need to be rescued from sin. He says in Romans 1, 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, if we just look around, we can see his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they could tell that there was a God. They Here's the, here's the important part. <clears throat> although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. 
and they, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things of the creation. The, the way in which when we reject God and what he says, we begin to live life according to, to our own thinking, a thinking that's ultimately marked by futility because life apart from God is futile. Even if life apart from God can provide some measure of satisfaction, life apart from God can, can provide some measure of fulfillment. You see, the, the picture that Paul paints in Ephesians 4 doesn't mean that everybody who doesn't have a relationship with God is marked by the worst cases of immorality and, and the, the most foolish ways of thinking. But this is the base case of life apart from God. Give us long enough as we suppress the truth and reject God and who he says he is and what he's revealed in his word, we will find ourselves not just thinking wrongly about God, but living in a way that offends the very holiness of God and brings us under the judgment of God. One commentator, John Stott, said it this way, the hardness of heart, that, that stubborn refusal to listen to God and his word, leads first to the darkness of mind, and then the deadness of soul under the judgment of God, and finally, to the recklessness of life. A life marked by eagerness to do what dishonors God. A life marked by sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We, we sometimes think this, uh, we, we see this phrase sensuality, and we think it refers just to the physical, uh, sensual things that are done in the world, but it also it can, can describe any type. Uh, of action in life that resists and refuses to submit to God. So Paul's saying, watch how you walk. This is who you used to be. I, I, I don't know all of, um, all of your stories, your testimony of, of maybe how you came to faith in Christ. Perhaps you came to faith in Christ at a young age. Um, and the way you used to walk isn't marked by these uh, you know, crazy ways of running from God and living in sin. Um, but yet you live in a world that's marked by these things. And Paul says, watch how you walk. But maybe your testimony is that you did come out of some pretty, some pretty bad stuff. Maybe, maybe there was a period of your life that was marked by running from God. Paul tells these uh, Gentiles, these Christians, he says, remember how you used to live? Don't go back. Don't go back to those things. It's, it's as if, I don't know if in your closet you have any clothes that you know don't fit, but you stubbornly hold on to, thinking that maybe you'll fit into them again one day. Um, I've got I've got loads of clothes like that, right? Uh, occasionally, I'll go through, and you know, we'll need to make room, and we'll finally uh, get rid of some things. It, it's like it's like trying to go back and put on clothes that don't fit. Once you're in Christ, you got a new wardrobe. Paul is going to say, and those old clothes don't fit. So why do you keep trying to put them on? Now, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't keep up with your health goals and try to get back into those clothes. That's, that's all fine and, and a worthy goal, perhaps, in our physical wardrobe. But spiritually, when we come to Christ, the, the old way of life, the, the clothes that marked our life before we came to know Christ, they don't fit anymore, and they're never going to fit anymore if we belong to Christ. So stop trying to put them on. And Paul's reminding these believers to, to turn away from this. And, and in doing so, he's, he's going to ultimately get to how they came to know Christ. But, but here I just want to emphasize, I, I've, I've read this quote before from uh, a, uh, 
a preacher of old, Charles Spurgeon, he says, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present time has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. The reason the church has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. As I think about that statement, I think about Paul's warning here to walk, to watch how we walk, to no longer walk as the Gentiles do, a life apart from God. It challenges me to ask myself, to ask our church, are we watching how we walk? Are, are we aware of the dangers of worldly thinking, of worldly thinking that comes from the right and from the left, of, of worldly thinking that can be found in the hallways of academia as well as in the, in the shadow of the church's steeple? See, we can get our thinking all kinds of ways twisted when we, when we remove ourselves from the foundation of God's word and we allow God's word to be the foundation that speaks into our life and challenges us. Not only the parts of the Bible that we like, but the parts of the Bible that confront us. Just like the prophets in the Old Testament were constantly calling God's people back to what God had said. They said, this is who God is, and this is what God has called us to. They were continually taking the people of God to task and saying, come back to what God said. Today, as a church, we must continually call ourselves collectively together to come back to what God's word says and to allow God's word to be the foundation of who we are and what we believe. Here's the most pressing question I believe we have to continually ask ourselves as the church. Are we submitting ourselves to God and his word? Are we willing to submit ourselves to God and his word? There's a, a biannual study done by uh, Lifeway, and um, there's another a group called Ligonier Ministries called the State of Theology. It, it examines the beliefs, uh, spiritual beliefs of, uh, of adults in the U.S., um, <clears throat> And it's not particularly just those who go to church, but a, a, a kind of a broad array of adults. It says that 54% of Americans, <clears throat> they, they believe for 54% of Americans, theological beliefs, beliefs about God, who he is and what he said, are not a matter of objective truth, but rather belong in the category of subjective personal opinion. So over half of people think what we believe about God is left to our personal opinion. Two-thirds of Americans agree that sin. everyone sins a little, but most people are basically good. Two-thirds of people in the U.S. believe that God accepts the worship of all religions equally and as valid. Ultimately saying that there isn't salvation only through faith in Jesus. And yet we're confused and all muddied up because apparently most Americans believe that you can only find salvation through Jesus uh, and, and even 60% believe that you have to trust in Jesus as your Savior. And yet we, we don't believe or we believe that God can accept all, all people's worship. We, we, have, we have beliefs that, that lead us uh, not only to think wrongly about God and salvation, but wrongly about the church. Most Americans agree, about 60%, that you can worship alone or just with your family, and that's a valid replacement for regularly attending and belonging to a church. And when it comes to morality and ethics, how we live in the world, you can imagine that U.S. adults are <clears throat> uh, in many ways divided over what we should, what, how we should live and what should be the authority for the way we live. Around half say that the Bible has the authority to tell us what to do. 
A quarter of U.S. adults believe God is unconcerned with our day-to-day living. When you think about what the Bible says about sexuality, only two in five believe that the Bible has the right to to shape our view of sexuality today or marriage today. Even only about half of people in the U.S. would say that abortion would be a sin. We're, We're a confused people about what we believe and about what authority should ground our belief. And God is telling us if we reject who he says he is and reject what he has said in his word, it will lead us to a path of futility in our thinking, darkness in our understanding, and ultimately a life that's separated from God. But that's not the way you learn Christ, Paul says. Now, as someone from Arkansas, I, I really relate to Paul here. So that's not how you learned Christ, right? Like that's, that's not the way you learned about Jesus. Uh, that, that's not the, the way that you heard the gospel. The gospel wasn't, hey, you know what? You're living a pretty decent life. You're doing the best that, that you can. You know what you need, though? You just need to add Jesus. Just add a little Jesus. There was a decorating phase um, you know, where you put birds on everything, you know, like you just put a bird on something. Uh, I, I don't know if you saw the video. There's a, a video about put a bird on it, you know, like you just kind of add a, add a bird and it makes the, you know, the, the decor look better or the, uh, you know, the, the shirt look better or whatever the case is. Um, some, sometimes we think about Jesus that way, you know, just add Jesus like you're doing a decent enough job. But, you know, sprinkle in a little church. Try your best not to say as many cuss words. You know, and, you know, maybe maybe cut back a little bit on some of those uh, vices that you like. And, and that's good enough. But, but Paul says that's not the way you learn Jesus. You didn't, you didn't just accommodate Jesus into your life as an add-on. But, but basically, he says, when you came to know Jesus, the only way Paul can describe it is when you put your faith in Christ, you become a new creation. You're totally changed. And so Paul's bringing the Ephesians back to their conversion. He's reminding them of how they learned about Christ, how they learned about who Jesus was and what Jesus has done. He said, you've been taught about Jesus and the truth is in Jesus. And it reminds us that faith isn't merely assenting to certain truths about Jesus, but faith is embracing wholeheartedly, personally, the person of Jesus. See, the Christian life isn't just about truths about God. It's about knowing God personally. It's about knowing and experiencing a relationship with the person of Jesus. And when we know Jesus, it changes us. It's the Jesus who walked on this earth and and took on human flesh and uh, he cared for the poor and he touched the leper and he forgave sins. He sat in the homes of sinners and tax collectors. And he called the the self-righteous to repentance and called those who were far from God, gave them hope that they could come to God. He's the the one who healed our diseases and forgave our sins, cared for our bodies and pointed us to, to the ultimate hope of eternal life. And then he went to the cross. As a sheep goes to the shears, he went to the cross on our behalf. And took the sin that we deserved. Dying in our place and for our sin. And he rose from the dead. 
And Paul is saying, this is how you learn Jesus, that you came to know Jesus. And when you came to know Jesus, when you put your trust in Jesus, you're not getting a, an add-on. This isn't just an upgrade to your previous service. You're getting a whole new plan. You're getting a whole new identity. And it's an identity that's marked by putting off the old and putting on the new. It's, it's no longer marked by hardness of heart and futility of thinking, but according to verse 24, it's marked by true righteousness and true holiness. That's what Ephesians 4:25 through 5:21 is all about, as we'll unpack over these next two weeks. You could say it this way: coming to know Christ involves repentance, which is putting off the old self. And, and faith, receiving by faith the new self, which is created, it says, after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Do you see that there in verse 23 and 24? We've put off the old in repentance, and we put off the new by receiving Christ by faith. And so when we talk about, when we talk about holiness, when we talk about these, this language of putting off and putting on, the Bible talks about it in two ways. Um, this is something that happened to us when we came to know Christ. It's our position, and it's what should mark our life, that we're actively day by day to put off and put on. In fact, there's a parallel passage in Colossians. In Colossians chapter uh, 3, uh, if you uh, flip over to chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, it says something similar. It says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that, this has already happened when you came to know Christ. You put off the old self with its practices, and you put on the new self, which is being renewed after the knowledge, um, in knowledge after the image of its creator. So when you came to know Christ, what happened to you, whether you felt it or not, is you became new. You got a new set of clothes. The old clothes were put away in repentance. When you recognized you're a great sinner and God's a great Savior, and you turn and trust in Him, you receive a new set of clothes, a new identity. And, and really, clothes isn't the best imagery because it's not, it's not like, you know, well, you know, today I'm going to put on the new clothes and you know, tomorrow I'm going to put on the old clothes. Positionally, in Christ, the old clothes are gone uh, and, and done away with. You've got a new, a new identity in Christ. It's a positional reality of what it means to belong to Christ. And that position that, that you have put off the old self and put on the new self, then becomes the foundation. Your, if you could say it this way, your positional holiness, who you are in God, becomes the catalyst for a lifestyle of holiness, of regularly putting off sin and putting on Christ-like character. We can put off sin and put on Christ-like character in an ongoing way because of what's happened to us through faith in Christ. And Paul adds one more, one more point here when he says that not only have we put off and put on, that's kind of past tense, but there's a present tense verb that he says in verse 23, crammed in the middle, and we are being renewed in the spirit of our minds. This is the ongoing work. Once we receive Christ, we have this new position, and that new position is fueled by the ongoing transformation, the inner renewal that God does within us as we walk by faith. So the church is made up of people who have come to know Christ. And people who have come to know Christ are people who are set apart by God. They're holy people. Yes, God is going to call us to be holy in practice. But we are holy in position in relation to God when we put our faith in Him. 
That's who makes up the church. The church is made up of holy people, of those who have come to faith in Christ. So what's your story? When did you come to faith in Christ? How did you learn about Christ? How have you experienced this relationship with God of being made new? Not because of anything you've done, but because of what he's done. Because of Christ. As a church, we're a people set apart, a people who have come to faith in Christ. But he goes on in verses 25 through 32 to say that we are a people who are being transformed to reflect God in the world. Verse 25 has its own therefore. In light of this positional reality of having learned about Jesus and come to faith in Jesus, put away all falsehood, he says. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. You see, the, the Christian life is not about behavior modification. It's not just about changing what you do. It's not just a, a matter of, of fixing a few things on the outside. The Christian life is about character transformation. And character transformation is an ongoing work, an ongoing process that God does in us as we continually submit ourselves to Him and our minds are renewed day by day. See, transformation comes out of new life in Christ. And this is important. I think some people, they, they, see, they see Christians or they hear about Christianity and they, they maybe are, are interested in it. I've had a conversation a while back with a college student who says, I don't, I don't ultimately believe in Christ, but the, the morals of Christianity, the kind of the, the teaching of how we should relate to one another is compelling to me. And, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue that without submitting to Christ. Well, it would, the world would be a better place if we allowed perhaps the character of Christ to shape how we relate to one another. But ultimately, we default to the, the Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, apart from, from knowing God personally and experiencing His grace and His Spirit transforming us. We, we don't have transformation in order to get new life in Christ, nor can we have transformation apart from new life in Christ. We can't earn a relationship with God, nor can we dismiss a relationship with God and just think that we can live a life as, as he defines it. Transformation comes out of new life in Christ. When you know Christ, it produces fruit in your life. Recently, my family, we went to pick apples. Um, <clears throat> and apple picking is fun, but really the reason that you go to an apple orchard is for the apple cinnamon donuts. I don't know if you figured that out, but that's actually... If you could pick those from trees, I would go every weekend. Um, but the apples are good as well, and the apple cider is good. But just imagine um, if you went to the apple orchard and they had stapled oranges on the tree. It might be interesting, but you ultimately would know that that tree didn't produce 
that apple tree didn't produce those oranges. In the same way, you can't just staple on Christian morality onto a life apart from new life in Christ. So transformation comes out of new life in Christ. We said earlier, transformation comes by the renewing of our minds. This is similar to what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 through 2. Uh, For some, this is a well-known verse. It says, don't be conformed to the way of the world. Uh, and, And conformity happens. If you stand still, you will be conformed. Our culture conforms us into its image, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be more like Christ. And so this comes, this comes through God's word, but it's more than this. I think often as Christians, we talk about the importance of studying God's word. I, I believe that there is no lasting Christian growth apart from studying God's word. Without the regular intake of God's word, we will not live the life that God intends for us to live. You may read it, you may listen to it, download the Dwell app and listen to God's word. Sometimes I listen to God's word and read. Sometimes I just listen. Sometimes we memorize it so we can think about it as we go. But apart from the intake of God's word, we will not grow. But it's not just about knowledge. Tonight at eight o'clock, we'll have uh, an equip class called Help Me Study the Bible. Help me to understand how to approach any passage of Scripture and get something out of it so that I can grow as a Christian. If, if you haven't signed up, I would love for you to come. Uh, sign up or, or email us. We'll send out the link so that you can be a part of it. It's not meant just to teach us um, uh, theoretically what to do, but to be hands-on to help us do it. But here's the goal of Bible study. The goal of Bible study isn't to win Bible trivia, right? It's not just to gain more knowledge, but it's to then... Uh, through studying God's word, to submit ourselves to God. It, it's to be drawn to God and to desire him. One of my one of influential pastor, uh, John Piper, talks about seeing and savoring Jesus. It, it's, when you read scripture, it's not just about knowing something, it's seeing God and enjoying him. The chief end of man is to, is to know and enjoy God. We, we say at Treasuring Christ that delighting in Jesus leads to a life that declares the good news of Jesus and displays the character of Jesus. So to come to God's word isn't just about knowledge, but it's about delighting. It's about enjoying God, having a relationship with him. And I, I'm not saying that your Bible study is going to give you warm fuzzies every day, but what it does is it lifts your eyes off yourself and puts them on God and shapes the way you approach life that day by, by allowing God to be at the forefront of how you think and how you live. We need transformation that comes by the renewing of our mind. And then when you look at verses 25 through 32, what you'll notice is that the transformation Paul is talking about is ultimately a community project. The transformation that God wants to do within us has implications for the way that we relate to one another. And we can't live the Christian life just in our own bubble but we must live the Christian life with one another. And then Paul gives these concrete examples of what transformation looks like. He says in verse 25, tell the truth, don't lie. Speak, put away falsehood and speak the truth. I don't mean to offend you, but <clears throat> you're all liars. And the church is really good at lying. And we do it when we get asked that question, how you doing? Sometimes it happens in our small groups when, when the questions turn just from 
stuff about the Bible to how it applies to your life. How is this being worked out in your life? Well, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm doing all right. Things are, you know, busy but good, right? Whatever, whatever our, our go-to is. Sometimes we're not willing to, to just tell the truth and be honest with one another about where we're at. No doubt when we withhold from others or, or we even present ourselves one way when the reality is another, it not only hurts us, but it hinders the church. And in fact, this is particularly, I, I point it out in this way, because this is particularly the, the foundation for why Paul says to not lie to one another, to tell the truth is because of his theology of the church, that we belong to one another. We are members of one another. In the church, we bear responsibility for one another, so we must speak truth to one another. Our corporate identity implies that we have an obligation to one another. You see, the, the transformation Paul's talking about is earthy, like it's real. It's about the way that we live and, and how uh, we shape our lives. He says, let your anger be righteous and don't lose your temper in verses 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. We, we just talked about this in Ephesians. And he gives a time limit. He says, uh, don't, don't allow the sun to go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. To, to allow the sun to go down on your anger is to get in bed with the devil, Paul says, to give him a foothold into your life, into bitterness and resentment, and to rage and, and hurting others. We, we should be angry about sin. We should be angry about what's wrong in the world, about injustice in the world. However, as Paul applies this, he's often talking about our relationships. And he says, in your relationships, keep short accounts. Deal with your sin. Don't allow your sin to wreak havoc on your relationships or allow Satan a temptation uh, drive a wedge in your relationship. And how often is it the case in the church that we are angry with one another, but because either of being uncomfortable to address our, our issue or just an unwillingness to address our issue, that we've allowed God to drive a wedge in our relationships with others. This happens both in marriages and in friendships and work and the church. Watch your anger, he says. And he says, Build and goes on in verse 28. He says, Work and be generous, don't steal. In ancient Greco Roman society, when work wasn't, uh, wasn't available, people would steal to get what they needed. Uh, <clears throat> perhaps today, not many of you are going into the store uh, as I did as a kid. I remember um, <clears throat> I was a sinner as a little kid. Uh, we would go into, into the grocery store. I would wear my sweatpants when we would go, and um, <clears throat> I would put as many baseball card packs uh, down my sweatpants as I could. Uh, and then I got home, and I would just feel terrible about all the cards that I had stolen. And then finally one day I got caught, and nothing is worse than getting caught. Kids, if you hear me, don't, don't hear me glorifying my sin. But as I got caught, I had to go back and take it into the store and tell them what I had done. And then I had other consequences to pay for uh, when I got home. Paul says, don't steal. And, and maybe you're not stealing packs of cards at the store. I hope you're not. Um, but perhaps it's the dishonesty at work, the cutting corners, the making compromises. And what Paul says here is actually pretty profound. He says, if you steal to get that sin, if we work to get, for ourselves, that's primarily what consumerism is about. 
work to get. We all work to get. But he goes on to say what, what Christianity should be defined by is we work to get to give. God gives us work to do that's useful so that we can have something to give to those in need. We work to get to give. But, but as I read this, it was particularly striking to me. Think about what this says. God says your work matters for your transformation. What you do Monday through Friday, maybe sometimes on Saturday, it matters to your transformation. God has given you useful work to do that provides for you and that is able to allow you to be generous with others. Your transformation isn't separated or disconnected from your work. Your work is very much a part of how God intends to transform you, to to grow you in holiness. So don't disconnect after Sunday what God wants to do in your life when you go to work on Monday. Because God has useful work for you to do so you can get to give. And then he says, build others up with your words. Don't tear them down. And don't, ultimately, he says, uh, allow there to be corrupt talk that comes out of your mouth, evil talk that comes out of your mouth. And, and this is more than just not cussing and telling dirty jokes, right? Like this is, this is allowing God to shape our words to one another, that our words would be a means of grace, that our words would build up, that our words would be fitting, that we would be encouragers, that we would speak the right word at the right time to encourage a brother or a sister. And, and Paul connects this to the Spirit, to not grieve the Spirit. So when we think about our words, we, we ought to think about, am I, am I going to please the Spirit or grieve the Spirit? And then he goes on to say in verses 31 through 32, be kind and forgive each other. Don't lash out and be bitter at others. He says, there's no room in the Christian life for bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, bitterness, a resentful attitude, wrath, an indignant outburst. Anger is the, talking about the festering of anger. Clamor is public shouting. Slander is abusive language. Malice is hostility. This is basically social media right here in a nutshell, right? He, he's saying, don't allow this to be your speech, but instead be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And this points us back to Jesus. Jesus in Luke 6, as he taught his disciples, he said, love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. And then it says this about God. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. See, kindness isn't just niceness. Kindness is reflecting God and His character. Be kind to one another, even to those who are ungrateful and evil. Be tenderhearted and forgive. You see, in the church, this sets the church apart from every other group. We, we can, all kinds of groups have rules about being kind to one another, being respectful, not being mean. We, we have certain societal norms. But there's something that Christ provides for us and Christ calls from us that separates us from the world. And that it's forgiveness. Forgiveness as God in Christ has forgiven us. You see, the, the way in which we're transformed is the everyday stuff of life. Your work, your relationships. When you are tempted to lash out and hurt others with your words. It comes down to speaking a fitting word to a friend. It comes down to controlling our tongue. 
comes down to uh, the way that we <clears throat> we look at our work and and the way that we we even think about um, our responsibility to other believers in the body of Christ. This is what transformation looks like, the ongoing work of God in our lives. This is how we grow in holiness. This is how we make our positional holiness become a reality in our daily life. God is calling us to be a people who are transformed to reflect Him in the world. The church is made up of those who know Jesus, and the church is made up of those who are being transformed by Jesus. This is the holiness of the church. This is what God is calling us to. And now, in our service, we're going to transition today to take the Lord's Supper. As a church, we take the Lord's Supper, and we're reminded of how we came to know Christ. We came to know Christ through His sacrifice on our behalf. And we're strengthened and nourished through taking the Lord's Supper, that that our faith would continue to grow, that we would continue to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. So here in a moment, as our band comes up, Pastor Chris is going to lead us in reflecting on the Lord's Supper and taking the Lord's Supper together. But as I I close and as we pray, as a church, I, I just want to call us back to the vision of holiness that God has given us as a church. I want us to be a people who influence our world because the the holiness of God marks our lives. See, I think sometimes as we think about a church, how we make a difference as a church, we we no doubt want to know the needs of our community and meet them. And we seek to do that on a regular basis. We want to be relevant and address the issues and the questions that people are asking in our culture. We believe God's word has something to say to all of us, no matter what we believe or what our background. But we ultimately know that God will use us to reach others, to serve others, to draw others into the life that's in Christ when we submit ourselves to him and to the holiness that he's called us to. Are you allowing God and his word to call the shots in your life? Are are you allowing God to transform you in the daily stuff of your life? Are you making room for God to challenge the way you think, the way you talk, the way you relate to others, the way you go to work? God's calling these areas to be transformed in our lives. Recall how good the gospel is that he's called you to himself, that he's made you holy, set you apart, and then live it out. And as we close now, and even as we take the Lord's Supper, I can't help but, but ask, do you have a conversion story like Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, where you've gone from repentance of sin, turning from your old way of life, and being made new in Christ? See, the gospel is that God made us for himself to know him, to enjoy him. But sin has separated us from God drawn a wedge between us and God. We can't make it up by living a good enough life or doing enough church or, or fixing some stuff in our life. We can, only, we can only experience life as God intends by returning to Him, turning from our old way and turning to Him, believing that He alone is the one who died for us and rose again. And if you want to give your life to him, the Bible doesn't give us a a particular thing to say, but it says surrender to him, call on him, confess your sin and confess that he is Savior. And so today as we we, um, 
now reflect on the Lord's Supper and in a moment as we respond in worship, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you're listening to this, even after this sermon today, and you haven't put your faith in Christ, would today be the day that you see your sin, your need for God, and you put your trust in Jesus? Put it in your own words to say to him, I know I'm a sinner. I can't, I can't make myself, I can't fix myself, but I give myself to you. I trust in Jesus as my Savior who died for me and who rose again. Make me new. Change me. Come into my life. And then let us know if that's you so that we can walk with you and rejoice with you in what it means to be a follower of Christ.